listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Do you ever read the Bible and find yourself just going, what in the world is going on? I mean, it is just a different culture. It's a different historical context. I mean, there's just so many differences and practices that you come across that sometimes it just feels strange. It feels weird. It feels odd. And you're just like, what is going on? I think other times you're reading the Bible and you're probably saying something like this, like, I can't believe that's in there. Like sometimes it's so raw and so open and transparent and honest and even about the shortcomings and the sins of some of its prominent characters that you're just kind of going, man, I can't believe they actually wrote that. And then there's some times when you're reading this book called the Bible, God's word to us. And you're like, I got a problem with that. Like that bothers my conscience. I think that's like morally wrong. And God said it. Like sometimes you're reading a text, you're like, man, I got a problem with that. And and I'm just wondering, whenever you come across to those texts in those moments, what is your approach? What do you do with that when you come to the hard parts of the Bible? I know what Thomas Jefferson did. I mean, some of you know who Thomas Jefferson is. He's, he's the American statesman, the founding father, principal author of the Declaration of Independence of the United States of America, the third president, a pretty important person in our history of our nation. You know what he did? He cut out the parts of the Bible he didn't like. He had like a scrapbook of the pieces that he had put together that he didn't want in the Bible. I mean, at least he was honest about it. You probably do the same thing. You may not have a pair of scissors in your possession, but the odds are you do it mentally. There's just parts of the Bible that just you wrestle with or doesn't make sense to you or it just bothers you. And so you just kind of cut them out of your mind. You're not going to pay attention. You're going to ignore it. You're going to put it back here. You don't want anything to do with those certain parts of the Bible. And of course, the problem is if you do that, then you end up having a faith of your own making and your faith and your relationship with God ends up kind of being a figment of your imagination. It's not rooted in truth. There's a problem with that. I would not encourage you to take the Thomas Jefferson approach to the Bible. So what do you do with the hard parts? You know, for the last several weeks, we've been in this series about the Bible. We've talked about the uniqueness of the Bible. We've talked about why you should trust the Bible, its reliability. We've talked about how to let the Bible guide and why you should let it guide your life. We've talked about how to read the Bible, how to understand the Bible. But today I want to, I want to talk about some problems people have with the Bible. And what do you do when you get to those parts of the Bible? Because, look, I know some of you are already, you already feel like you're in the hard part of the Bible because you've been reading through Leviticus. Those of you who are going through the Bible engagement, reading through the Bible in a year, right now you're in Leviticus and you're reading about all the ceremonial laws that they had to to follow and, and all the instructions for how they were to construct the 
hint of meeting the tabernacle and, and then it told you them again when they were building it. And you're just like, ah, oh, to you, this, this is when most people quit reading. I mean, this is it. You get to Leviticus, most people are like, okay, I'm done. I'm out, done with reading through scripture. That's honestly where, where a lot of people stop reading. I'm gonna encourage you to keep reading on and you're gonna be like, good, because this is the hard part of the Bible. But I'm kind of thinking today, maybe you haven't got to the hard part yet. I mean, maybe you're in the hard part, but maybe you haven't gotten to the part where you're like, I really have a problem with this. And that's where a lot of you are headed. Because when you get to the hard parts, the parts where you really have a problem with it, I'm just wondering, what are you going to do with it? I mean, ultimately, I'm going to encourage you to trust the Bible, to trust it in spite of the difficulties in spite of the stuff you're wrestling with, the, the hard parts, because I, I think you're going to gain a deeper insight into who God is, who you are, who God's creating you to be, and the deeper you're going to grow. I, I know you can challenge the Bible, but I'm going to encourage you to let the Bible challenge you when you get to the hard parts. And you're about to get to a hard part. Deuteronomy, Joshua, First Samuel. This is about the conquest of Canaan. Many critics of the Christian faith use this as fodder to launch fire at the Christian faith. In fact, Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, says about these texts that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous, proud, petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, and it keeps going. But I'm going to stop there. I think his words are totally off base. I think they're totally untrue. But there are some hard scriptures to digest when you get to these texts. I want to give you some context here. Because God's people, the Israelites, they've been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. God miraculously delivers them out of Egypt, crosses them across the Red Sea, then allows the waters to defeat the entire Egyptian army that's in pursuit. He leads them into the wilderness where he takes care of them and he's going to lead them into the land of Canaan. It's the promised land that he gave them, a land flowing with milk and honey. They're going to go into that land. They are to take possession of the land, but they refuse to do it because the nations that are already in the land, they are large and powerful and numerous. And the spies that went into the land to look at it and said, yeah, the land is beautiful, but the people there are like giants to us. We are like grasshoppers in their eyes. And out of fear, they refuse to go. And so for the next 40 years, they wander in the wilderness as God allows that entire generation to die off so that the next generation can go into the land. And that's when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 7, where Moses gives the law to his people again. Those of you who are reading through the Bible, I know you can't wait to get there to hear some of that law again. You're excited about that. You're anticipating the days. But he's giving them instructions about going into Canaan. And he says this in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. It begins some verses that you're going to wrestle with. Really? God destroy them 
totally. The Hebrew term refers to irrevocable giving over of things or persons to the Lord, often by destroying them. I mean, it just seems a little harsh. It's just hard to imagine that this would be the God that we, the, that we know that he would, he would do this. And it leads us right into the, to the book of Joshua that records the military conquest of the land of the Canaanites. And in Joshua chapter 6, we get to this battle of Jericho. And if you grew up in the church, this is one as a kid you love because this is when the Israelites were marching around the city every day for six days. And then on the seventh day, they marched around it seven times. And then they blow the trumpet and they give a shout and all the walls come tumbling down. They fall down. And in children's church, we love this. that They defeat the army with some instruments. I mean, it's awesome. But then we keep reading. In Joshua 6, 20 through 21, 24 through 25, it says, When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted. At the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men, women, young, old, cattle, sheep, donkeys. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men of Joshua. She hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. You look at that text and you see that you see God's mercy as they spare Rahab. But then you see where God seems to tell them to destroy every living thing, man, women, young, old, cattle, sheep, donkeys. You know, like, how do you explain that? It doesn't sound like our God, does it? Something doesn't feel right about that. One critic writes, I speak for no one except myself, but I believe that killing innocent people is morally wrong. And killing Canaanite civilians is to be sharply distinguished from killing soldiers in the battles that were necessary for the Israelites to conquer the land that God had promised them. I frankly find it difficult to believe that it was God's will that every Canaanite man, woman, and child be slaughtered since the Bible clearly says that this was God's will. I must conclude that the Bible, biblical writers in this case were mistaken. The error of confusing patriotic sentiment with God's will is a common one in human history, but it's an error nonetheless. The conclusion he comes to, the Bible writers got it wrong. This isn't what God said. They can't be trusted. I don't recommend that you decide what you're going to believe and accept from the Bible based on your own moral sentiment because that could mean we all come to different conclusions about everything. That's pulling your own Thomas Jefferson. I don't encourage it. Maybe there's actually more to the story here. I mean, even when I hear what this critic wrote, I mean, my first thought is, well, God's will isn't that every single Canaanite man, woman, child be utterly destroyed or, and slaughtered. Secondly, it's false to assume that these people were innocent. These people were actually so guilty that Leviticus 18.25 says that the land vomited them out because of the atrocities and the sins that these people were committing. We'll get to that in a minute. But thirdly, while it is wrong to kill innocent people. God is the giver of life. And as Job chapter 121 says, he can take it away, especially as it relates to his punishment and his justice, because he's holy and he's just. And I would just say, even as hard as some of these parts are, when you read them, especially two texts, one in Joshua 6, the other one in 1 Samuel, when you read these two texts, as hard as they are, we need even the hard parts of the Bible. 
We need them, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, because this is God's word for us. It reveals the things that we need to know, and we need to wrestle with it, even the hard parts, because we can can affirm the accuracy of the Bible. And so if we wrestle with the hard parts, we will allow it to refine our view of God and ourselves and our world and sin and justice and humanity, human sexuality, gender, whatever it is, the word of God, when you wrestle with the hard parts, will help you to know him better and know yourself better. And I just want to challenge you to trust this story as you're reading through it, to trust the story. God is revealing himself to you, even when it's confusing, even when it's troubling, even when it's harsh, even when it's upsetting, God can use it. And so when you get to the hard parts like Deuteronomy 7 and Joshua 6 and Joshua 10 and Joshua 11 or 1 Samuel 15, which some would say describe the holy wars. Let me give you some perspective that may help you wrestle with these things. I think these are things that have helped me wrestle with these things. I pray and hope it'll help you wrestle with them so that we have a, a healthier understanding of what is happening here in these texts. And I hope this can help. So let's start with this one. Number one, here's what's happening. Here's what's happening in the text. God is bringing justice for the sin and atrocities of the Canaanites. God is bringing justice for the sin and atrocities of the Canaanites. These people that are in the land of Canaan, they are not innocent people that are just being overrun. If I, to, to understand this, Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 5, here's what it says. God's talking to his people Israel. He says, after the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it's on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of their land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You're going to notice often through these texts, it's more about driving out than killing off. He's going to drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then. That it is not because of your righteousness that your Lord, your God is giving you the good land to possess. For you're a stiff-necked people. (laughs) The Israelites are not marching into the promised land because they're righteous and good. And because God loves them and he hates everybody else. That's not what this is. This is not an ethnic cleansing. No, God says it's because the Canaanites are so evil that you're going to take possession of their land. You're stiff-necked. But God is going to use you, this nation, to bring punishment to these nations. In other words, throughout history, that's how God works. He will bring in nations to bring punishment to other nations who are wicked before him, who are committing wicked acts. And what you need to understand about these Canaanites is how evil and wicked they had become. Because for over 500 years, God had been waiting until he finally brought his judgment. He had been patient with them. So you got to go all the way back to what God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, where God said to Abraham, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, meaning Canaan. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What's God saying to him? 
There's going to come a day when your people will come back here. Why? Because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached their full measure. But when it does, there will be justice. There will be punishment. And wow, is God patient. Over 500 years of waiting for the sins to reach their full measure. It ought to tell you something about his patience. And, and once that sin was overflowing with complete degradation, then God responds with what to us feels harshly to a community that was beyond evil. You see, God's execution of justice didn't come until after hundreds of years of patience and mercy. Because God executes justice from a perspective that we don't have. I don't know what he knows. I don't see what he sees. I don't have a perspective that he has because he has foreknowledge, which means even the young people, however young they were, that died in the city of Jericho or in that occupation, God knew their actions and their choices that they were going to make. Maybe they were on a path to do things even worse than their parents, which is often the case of what happens in cultures when we are sinning and rebelling against God. I don't know, but God does know. And it's an inaccurate perspective to think these are just innocent victims instead of realizing God is actually bringing justice in this moment. Let me see if this helps a little bit. In 2008, China Arnold who was 28 years old. She was found guilty for murdering her baby daughter. I still remember this case because it was so shocking to me. Do you know how she murdered her daughter? She put her baby in a microwave. That's how she killed her daughter. The forensics that came back from this said she was in there for minutes, several minutes in that microwave. It, she, she killed and burned her baby to death. Now, I would imagine that if I asked you, does this woman deserve to be driven from her home? Does she deserve to be put in prison? Or does she deserve the death penalty since she killed her daughter? Justice for many of you would say yes. Yes. And maybe you're even thinking to yourself when you hear a story like that, why doesn't God do something about that? Why doesn't he stop it? And the answer is, sometimes he does. And the example I'm giving you is the conquest of Canaan. Because not only did those Canaanites worship demonic idols and engage in crazy sex acts, they sacrificed their children to the gods. The god of Molech. Molech was a Canaanite underworld deity. He was this bull-headed idol with a human body. His belly was a fire that they would burn and made out of that metal, his arms and hands. They laid their babies in those hands and sacrificed them to that god. That's how they worshipped. That was their worship to the god of Molech. And there's something in every one of you says, why doesn't God do something about it? Why doesn't God stop it? Because that's what justice does in us. It's not right. That's wrong. We need to do something. In fact, Plutarch, a Greek writer and philosopher from the first century, said that during those sacrifices, when they were offering their children to that statue, there would be a loud noise of drums and flutes in an effort to drown out the noise of the wailing cries of those babies so it wouldn't reach the ear of the people who'd given those babies to sacrifice 
That's what the people in the land of Canaan were doing to their babies, offering them as sacrifices, burning them in the fire, just as their parents had done. And God knew the atrocities to come. Maybe it was going to get worse. I don't know. But they were not innocent people. And so I would propose this, that both justice and mercy were on display as God punished those nations. Justice that looks harsh. Mercy because of atrocities that were not committed. Because of God's action. We want justice when people are mistreated and taken advantage of and murdered and raped. All of which was happening in Canaan. And God was using Israel to carry out his justice. Which also means this, number two... God is eliminating wickedness more than he's obliterating the wicked. He's eliminating wickedness. The command to destroy them totally in Deuteronomy 7 is contextualized by the words, do not intermarry with them, for they will turn your sons and daughters away from following me to serve their gods. Well, how can you intermarry with them if they're dead? Deuteronomy 7.5 says, this is what you're to do to them. Break down their altars, smash the sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. As such, the aim of God's command was not the obliteration of the wicked, but the obliteration of wickedness. In other words, this is not ethnic cleansing. This is cleansing of wickedness. And so John Walton in The Lost World of the Israelite Conquest suggests that the point of Israelites' invasion was more about the dismantling of the community of which the Canaanites were a part than ending their lives. He says you can almost compare it to what the Allies did, as they, what they set out to do during World War II when they were on the mission to end the Nazi regime, regime. They didn't mean that they had to kill every German, even though they were destroying that regime. Well, we know not all Germans were killed because majority of Springfield is German. That's actually the majority of the ethnic background here. God's people were a part of God's plan to cleanse the land of evil practices and to push back the dark spiritual forces that enslaved the people. It was not to eliminate them. And that's why over and over again, God gives commands to the Israelites for how they're to treat the foreigners among them. They were not to mistreat them. If these foreigners wanted to live in their community and be a part of that, and they were to turn from those ways and follow the Lord and be in their community, he gave all kinds of rules about that. In Deuteronomy 27, 19, God said, Cursed is the man who withholds justice from the alien and the fatherless or the widow. In fact, it goes on to say foreigners living among the Israelites, they were allowed to celebrate the Passover. In Numbers 9, they were to benefit from the agrarian system of welfare. In Leviticus 19, they were to enjoy full legal protection. Deuteronomy 1, even descendants of Israel's enemies, the Edomites and the Egyptians. They were allowed to enter into the assembly of the Lord in Deuteronomy 23. So, So God is showing grace and mercy, concern for these people from the pagan nations, even in the midst of carrying out his justice on those nations. So the primary language that's used as you read through this text, it is really about, that's used of Israel, it's about driving out, not killing off. Those really harsh commands are pretty rare, actually. Primarily only used in two battles. And driving out the Canaanites, driving out, actually shows up like 60 times. It's a language of eviction, not murder. 
Josh Butler says, it's like a rowdy dancer that gets booted from a club. The bad news is you get booted out. The good news is you're still alive. But this driving out is something we see in Scripture. Like in Deuteronomy 11, Moses says that the Lord will drive out the nations before you. God is primarily doing it, not not Israel. There's a power disparity. These nations are larger and stronger and more powerful and these massive fortresses. So God's doing it. In Exodus 23, we read little by little. God says, I will, he tells Israel, I will drive them out before you until you're large enough to take possession of the land. God tells the Israelites to wipe them out. And then he says, don't let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me. This wiping out doesn't mean that they're all dead. Wiping them out is getting them out of the land, out of your community. It's God's punishment on them. In Joshua 23, it says, The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one can stand against you. And so it's, it's driving out. Can you think of another passage in Scripture where people are driven out by the Lord? When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they were driven out of the garden There was even a sense of his mercy in that so they wouldn't perpetually be in their sin as they eat of the tree of life. But also there was punishment. There was justice that was seen there in that moment as they were driven out. Which leads us to a question, well then how do you know this is not an ethnic cleansing because God does the driving out even with his own children, his own people. Not just Adam and Eve. God did the same thing with his own people Israel. He even drove them out of the land because he's a just God. In fact, he told them that if they rebelled against him and went the way and followed the gods of those around them, that they would be driven out of the land by nations. And they were by the Babylonians, the Assyrians. In fact, just before Joshua died in his old age, he said this to the Israelites in Joshua 23. He said, but just as every good promise of the Lord your God has come true, so the Lord will bring on you all the evil he's threatened until he's destroyed you from this good land that he's given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land that he's given you. I mean, even there we see words like totally destroyed, perish. But it didn't mean that every Israelite was dead. It meant that they perished from the land. They were driven out. It reveals that God does not discriminate in his justice. He's consistent. God will discipline and punish his own people too. And, and God, when he says destroy them, they may, they're still alive, many of them, but they're driven from the land. Marty Solomon on the Bema podcast, he's a professor. He asks the question, does God really prefer conquest as a way of justice? Does God prefer this? And his answer was, no, I don't believe that God prefers it. But that he was communicating in a culture in which every nation, every people saw conquest as the evidence that their God was in control. Their God was powerful. That's why in Egypt, every one of the plagues that God did was one of the gods of the Egyptians. Because the Egyptians thought their God was the most powerful. And God was revealing, no, I'm the one true God. In many ways, he's revealing himself by speaking their language. Lowering himself to speak in a way that communicated to people. 
so they could understand him and who he was. Old Testament scholar Ben Allenberger said that every other nation in antiquity claimed that their gods participated in the wars and were responsible for giving their warriors victory. But only Israel came to see that it was unnecessary for them to even fight. You know the verse that be still and know that I'm the Lord? We often take that to mean we need to be quiet in our devotional time. But the text really comes from a time when the Israelites have the the Red Sea here, the Egyptian army here. God allows them to cross on dry ground. God destroys the entire Egyptian army. God's telling him, just be still and know that I'm God. You don't need to fight. I'm going to fight for you. You had this weak nation with a God who was in doing the battle. Israel was not a powerhouse. So when you read these texts and they're going into these communities and you see them having victory, you need to realize Israel is not the bully here doing this. God is doing this to bring justice and punishment. These Israelites are former slaves of Egypt. They're going up against these powerhouses in the ancient world. They have sticks and stones while these Canaanites have horses and chariots and high-tech metal. Canaan is heavily fortified with fortresses where Israel's defense system was a little wooden box in which the presence of God was with them. Israel marches into Canaan like ants under the elephant's shoes. They're outgunned. They look like they're just going to get crushed. It's in this context that Israel's learning to sing this song in Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. These people were nothing going up against the powerhouses of their day. It'd be kind of like your local high school football team. Whatever they go by, the Eagles, the Tigers, the Indians, the Pirates, the Jays, um, the Hornets, whatever it is. It'd be like your local high school football team going up against the Kansas City Chiefs. They would get destroyed. We'd start seeing some of this kind of language resurfacing, wouldn't we? And so it's just evident that God was fighting on their behalf, allowing the least to defeat the mightiest. Because it was really about bringing justice and it was about eliminating wickedness. And you can allow some paradigm shifts to begin to happen in your mind when you begin to understand what God is doing in these stories. Maybe it's helpful to you. I was reading about some additional information about that even this week. Josh Butler was sharing some thoughts about this. I thought it was interesting to consider. That may speak into this a little bit. He said, you know, it probably is helpful to understand that the cities of Canaan were military cities. Today in our, when we hear city today, we think of civilian population centers filled with people and children and families. But he says in the ancient Middle East, they were fortified military outposts that often were defending the roads to the villages. So when they go in and destroy a city, most of that would have been the soldiers and those who were fighting. And Jericho included Rahab and her family because she was a prostitute there. And you can imagine why she was there. But these were kings, which were military generals. He says it this way, Israel is taking on Napoleon and his armies, not Paris and the masses. And he says, and typically it wasn't like the Middle Ages where everybody ran into the city for protection. Oftentimes when the battle was coming, they ran out of the city. In fact, Jesus told the Christians to 
get out of there when Rome was going to encircle Jerusalem. The second thing he said that's helpful to note is even the terminology of conquest language, battle language, just the way it's written. Christopher Wright, he says, one of the most respected OT scholars in the world today, he says, we must recognize the language of warfare had conventional rhetoric that made absolute and universal claims about total victory and wiping out the enemy. But such rhetoric often exceeded the reality on the ground. Because that's not to accuse the biblical writers of falsehood, but to recognize the literary conventions of writing about warfare, how you spoke about it. The illustration that he gives is, it's like when you're, when you're talking about the big basketball game that you had on Friday night. And, and you're talking to some high school kid, and, and uh, it could be someone in college as well, and they, they're just like, man, we totally destroyed them. We killed them. Now, maybe they won by 10 or 12. But if you're a passerby, you're thinking they must have won by 25 or something. You know, must have, they, they destroyed them. We, we're aware of that kind of language when we talk about competition and fighting and battles. But if you're a foreigner, you might think that everybody's dead that was in the gym. It's the way we talk. And so whenever you're reading about some of these things, same things, like in Joshua chapter 10, verse 40, you read this. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Wow, you read that verse, you might think there was no more battles and everybody that, that God wanted to bring his justice on, everybody was dead and died, not, not a single person breathing. And yet you got chapters 11 and 12 and 13, and there's all kinds of havoc going on with people that are still there, the Canaanites, and, and there's more to that. And then the conquest of Canaan continues. It goes on for books of the Bible all the way up until the time of King David. So what are we saying here? And so he carried out what God had him to do in that moment in his totality. But it's, again, it's that battle language and wiping out and it's just carrying out God's punishment. So when I think through all of this and wrestle with this, it's like, man, what, are, what do we come away from this with? We're re reading a, an ancient historical document that, that has relevance to our lives. And what is it saying to us? And I like the way that Matt Smith put this. Here's what he says. None of the above means we shouldn't be disturbed by the conquest of Canaan. We should be but not because it calls into question God's character, but because it calls into question our own. I want you to hear that again. None of the above means we shouldn't be disturbed by the conquest of Canaan. We should be. But not because it calls into question God's character, but because it calls into question our own. God is holy and we are not. And it's just revealed that he's patient with us, so patient with us, but we don't humble ourselves and we don't repent and we do not obey. God sets himself against sin. So we should be disturbed. We should be disturbed enough not to block our ears and to point our finger at God and cry foul as Richard Dawkins, the atheist, does. Rather, we should humbly accept God's pronouncement. The judgment awaits all who would turn away from him and rebel against him and, and pursue evil and wickedness. We should see it for the warning that it is. 
That we are prone to do the very same things that Israel did, the very same thing that the Canaanites did, and go our own way. And because of our own evil desires, we're dragged away and we're enticed. And we begin to live for this world. And because of that, we bring pain and curses and atrocity and hardship. We should be aware of that. And it should lead us to a, a place of humility, of repentance. Where we turn and we pursue the Lord. Because here's what this means. God's patience with Canaan meant years of hardship and suffering for his people. And you say, God, why didn't you do something sooner? And he would say the same thing he says to us in 1 Peter, why he hasn't returned yet. You know, when he comes, he's coming as a just God to bring punishment to those who've turned away from him, rebelled against him. It is coming. The day of judgment and his wrath is coming. Why has he not come yet? And Peter says, because he's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. Because our job's not done yet as a church for people of every nation and tribe to know who Jesus is, to know God, so they can be gathered around the throne. It's his patience. And that's why we still today sometimes go, God, why don't you stop this? God, why don't you do something about this? God, why don't, we want justice. And he's saying, because you're not ready for justice. That's why after nine o'clock, the lady that came out and just said she needs Jesus. And she needs a relationship with Jesus. Because she knows that God is giving us opportunity right now because of his patience to respond to him. Here's what God said in Jeremiah 7, 5 through 7. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. This is what God said to his people, who he used to bring judgment on those who live in the land of Canaan. Now, if you will follow me, and you won't start committing the atrocities they committed and going in the sins that they committed, you can live in this land forever. Did they? No. They disobeyed. They disregarded. They began to worship their idols and go their own ways and commit their own sins. Because they weren't willing to humble themselves and to repent and turn to the Lord. God is patient with us. He wants us in a relationship with him. And I just want to say right here, right now, if today you need to make that decision to come to Jesus and make him the Lord of your life. It's why he came. Jesus came the first time to save us from our sins, to take people who were dead in their sins and make them alive again, to fill them with the presence of the Holy Spirit so we could be free from our guilt and we could be empowered to live a new life. This is why Jesus came, so that when Jesus comes back, we are his children. We are caught up in the air with him. We spend eternity with him. We are cleansed and forgiven and washed clean. This is what Jesus wants from us. And if today you need to make a decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life and to pursue him or to repent, we want to give you a chance to respond. And here in a moment, I'm going to be stepping out to decision point. I would love to talk with you right there how to begin a relationship with Jesus, how to repent of your sins, how to take a next step so you're, you stand with God, covered by his blood in his grace through your faith. Maybe you're watching 
online right now. And you can go to northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision to begin that conversation. Or even if you're in the room, in the seat pocket in front of you is a card. And fill it out. Drop it at a box as you leave. But don't leave today putting off what you know God wants you to do right now. This is what these kinds of texts that we wrestle with lead us to do. It's it's so we'd respond in repentance and turn to the Lord. He was even giving people in Canaan a chance to do that with his own people so they would know who he was, the true God, and come back to him. That's what he desires more than anything else. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.